life. Displayed on the video screen this morning, are there any pieces of it that you would want edited out? Is there? Okay. So if I gave you a warning a few weeks ago and I said to you, hey, by the way, on a Sunday ticket or Sunday coming up, your entire life's going to be on screen. Number one, you'd love that warning, right? And number two, I got to believe that there were certain aspects of it that you would rather have leave on the editing floor, right? I know I would. Now, some of you are perfect. Some of you have never had any issues at all. But I got to believe that there are a lot of us in the room that have certain aspects of our life that we would really not rather everyone know about. There's some things in our lives that we struggle with. We may appear perfect on the outside, and everyone thinks we are, but there are certain areas of our life that, if we're really honest, we struggle with. Now, I'm not talking about sneaking chocolate or taking your golf ball and moving it closer to the pin when no one is watching or downloading music. I'm talking about major issues that if you're really honest, you already know what they are. I mean, I could identify them this morning. They could be anything from anger to alcohol. It could be pornography. It could be any kind of addiction. It could be really deep resentment, honest hatred toward an individual, reconnecting after you're married with an old boyfriend or an old girlfriend. It may seem innocent at first, but it's going down a track that's going to really end up destroying your life. Maybe you already know what it is. Maybe the Spirit of God has already pointed it out to you and has been talking to you about it, and all of a sudden you come here this morning and say, seriously? They're going to discuss this particular issue, not the issue per se, but the problems that go with it. A lot of people find themselves in situations either at work or home or relationally or wherever that may be where they find themselves being really bombarded with a particular issue and, and the enemy knows that's their weakness and he constantly throws it in front of them like a neon sign. I don't do Facebook. I, I'm not techie enough to know how to do that. I, I'm pretty techie in some areas and it always cracks me up what people put on that. I'm going, you're kidding. But that has become, not only Facebook, but social media has become one of the largest influencers now of affairs. Because people are reacquainting themselves with someone that was formerly in their life that has now come back into their life and they're going through a deep period in their own relationship or their marriage where they just want to reach out and talk to someone or connect with someone. And they remember that person, listen to them well or talk to them well. And, and a lot of times it does happen at work and the list is endless of places that it could be. But now it has become one of those places where I'm now getting in touch with someone and all of a sudden emotions are being rekindled. I'm going down a track. I don't want to go down. 20 years ago, no one would have ever talked about that. They would have never even thought of that. It would have been at work. It would have been at church. It would have been in a class. It would have been at the gym. But there are so many ways now the enemy has access to our lives. And not that he hasn't already, but there are so many ways that, that we are constantly being bombarded with issues and information and stuff and media. And the list is endless to all of a sudden we find ourselves going down a track that we don't want to go down. A lot of people in the room, maybe not everyone in the room, but a lot of people in the room struggle with the dark side. Not everyone has one. We may have that area that we struggle with, but it's not necessarily a really deep dark side. Others of us do. Leadership. I've said it before in a class that I taught years ago to missionaries and leaders. Even leadership gifts can have a dark side if we're not careful and if it's not constantly submitted to Christ. 
risk-taking. By nature, leaders are action-oriented. They take risks. That's how they're wired. Effective leaders never allow an organization to slide into maintenance mode. The danger, of course, is to take risks and make change just for the sake of taking risks and creating change and thereby hurting the organization. Music can have a dark side. It can be done for the glory of God or the glory of the person performing. Communication can have a dangerous side if we're not careful, especially leaders. Leaders love to talk, right? They love to talk. They'll talk about the future. They'll share war stories of the past. They got a story or an answer for everything. You put a leader on the phone with a telemarketer, and the leader will tell the telemarketer what to buy. We understand the power of words, but if we're not careful, we can use words and communication to manipulate and control. Especially religious leaders who can say, I've heard from God. This is what we ought to do. This is what God is saying when he has it. This morning, I want to take us to Joshua chapter 6 and 7. We're going to discuss a very sensitive issue. I want to honestly talk about one of the most powerful sections in this book. I have loved the book of Joshua. I hope you have as well. But I want to talk about a very powerful section of Scripture, one that when you read the book of Joshua can never, ever be overlooked. It is so powerful, it's going to take us two weeks to unpack it. You have sermon notes in front of you. I think on the sermon notes we already put both dates so we wouldn't scare you right up front when you looked at the amount of material. A couple of weeks ago, I got a note from someone that said, you talk so fast on Sunday morning, I missed the last two lines or blanks to fill in on a given Sunday morning. To be honest with you, I never even did them in the second service. You all know that? I have no idea what they even were. No, but if you call my secretary, Denise, she can get you those and fill them in for you. Got an email from someone who said, every once in a while, you ought to know that we have exchanged students that sit in our audience can you imagine what it's like for them to try to process what I'm saying? I have no idea how Indy does this. Now she knows I'm talking about her. But I have no idea how anyone does that. But she said they're trying to process the information and communicate it in their head from the English that you're sharing to the language they know the best. And I'm going, God bless you, my child. I don't know how you do that. This morning I want to talk to you about the issue of sin, its consequences, the impact on our family, the impact on the church, Next Sunday morning, how to avoid it and God's response to it. That's where you have to come back to be able to understand. I was sharing with the elders this morning. We were praying together. I'm aware of the fact that I'm talking about one of the deepest issues of humanity. But I'm delighted in the fact that God didn't allow us to linger on our own or try to figure this out on our own. He gave us more answers that we can avoid it, ways to get out of it, ways to get through it, ways to get beyond it. He gave us descriptions of his reaction to it and how he embraces us when we come back to him. And I love that. This issue is so enormous that if we're not careful, we could feel so overwhelmed by it that we would feel there's no hope. I'll never get beyond this. And there are so many answers in all of Scripture. Next Sunday morning, I'm going to give you a dozen of them at least. Probably one or two I hadn't even thought of yet. And then specifically talk about how God responds to it and how he welcomes us home when we recognize the issue. The story is found in Joshua 7, but I want to back up to chapter, chapter 6 a moment to lay the foundation for it. They just finished the Battle of Jericho. You know that, right? You all learned that when you were a kid. Joshua, Battle of Jericho, Jericho. Now you got that in your mind, right? Now you're going to be singing it all the way through. It's just like it's a small, small world. Yeah, I did it. Now you're going to be singing it in your head the entire sermon. 
just finished the battle of Jericho that destroyed the city. God kept the promises that he made to Joshua, and Joshua kept the promises that he made to others, specifically to Rahab. We shared her life a few weeks ago in chapter 2. He gives, God gives clear instruction to Joshua. It begins chapter 6, verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up. Daybreak, they marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that are in it are to be devoted to the Lord. That's key in here. Only Rahab the prostitute, the promise that was made, and all who are in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies when, when they went. Now, verse 18, but keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. But chapter 7 now, you flip over. The Israelites were unfaithful. In regard to the devoted things, Achan you know, gives his lineage of the tribe of Judah, he took some. I love all those additives. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, the tribe of Judah, basically Ahab took stuff. <laughs> so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Verse 2. After the defeat of Jericho, they moved to the next city. It's the city of Ai. After Joshua sent men from Jericho, he sent them now to Ai, which is near beth Avon, east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied it out. Worked in Jericho, why not again? So they did that. They sent the spies out. Spies noticed that it wasn't a big deal. No need to send the whole army to the city, only send a few, and they do. And for the first time, Israel takes a pretty severe beating. story picks up in verse 5. About 3,000 men went up. That's that small army, but they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gates as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear became like water. Joshua, the strong, courageous leader, is devastated. Look at verse 8. He tore his clothes, fell face down on the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same. They sprinkled dust on her head, the Old Testament and Jewish context of culture of mourning and recognizing sin. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, as he prays, why did you ever bring us across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Sounds very similar to what the children of Israel said as they began their journey. God, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? We were better off there. Really? You were about to die. You complained about it for 400 years. You know, you have a little bit of a lack of food, and you say you're better off in Egypt. Now here Joshua is saying, God, we would have been better off not crossing Jordan had we known this. And then look at what he does. Pardon your servant, Lord. I love that phrase. Pardon me, God, just for a minute. I need to say something to you. What can I say now that Israel has been routed out by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this, and they'll surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? I love the confidence of Joshua to do that. Look at what he's saying and how he finishes his prayer. God, you ought to know your reputation is at stake here. In case you didn't know it, God, your reputation is at stake here. You can see Moses' influence on Joshua. Moses did that all the time with God. Joshua chapter 1, God tells Joshua, be bold and courageous. Chapter 9, you see him, bold and courageous. God, I don't understand this. 
I don't like it. David called the man after God's own heart, prayed in a very similar fashion. Did you know that God can handle our concerns? God can handle our questions. God can handle our whys. And if you have a why of life, why this, why them, why now, why today, why her, why him, why us? Any of you, just a couple of you. You ever tell God about that? If somebody said to you, you shouldn't question God. Where do you get that? God can handle our concerns. God can handle our questions. God can handle our issues. God can handle it when we say, I don't get this. I don't like this. I don't understand this. Please explain this to me. God's okay with that. Corey Ten Boone, probably one of the most well-known persons of the 20th century, was a Jew captured by the Nazis. Her family was devastated and came out of that, lived through it, and became an amazing evangelist for God. And Brother Andrew's book, When God Changed Her Mind or God Changed His Mind, there are a number of stories about her where she would take the Word of God, open it up, point to a promise of God, and say, God, I don't know if you remember that you said this, but this is what you said. So I'm expecting you to respond to this because you promised this would happen, and I'm asking you right now to fulfill what you said you would do. In case you forgot, God, here it is. And she would do that all the time when she prayed. And never once struck down by lightning. (laughs) God can handle our concerns. God can handle our questions. God can handle our frustration. Look at how he responds. There's so much before we even get to the sermon notes in this section of Scripture that I don't want you to miss. In this case, God responds very clearly to Joshua. And he says this, get up. Get off your face. Quit praying and deal with the issue. That's huge. Get up, quit praying, deal with the issue. Similar to us when we hear our kids say, or we've said to our kids, don't tell me you're sorry again, just don't do it. Have you ever had to say that to your kids? I'm tired of you just saying you're sorry and you keep doing the same behavior. Deal with the issue, deal with the behavior, quit saying you're sorry. Have any of you wives ever said this to your husbands? I don't want to hear you say I'm sorry again. I want to know that you really mean it this time and you're going to change the issue or the behavior. Any of you wives ever, don't raise your hand. But any of you wives ever thought that, to want to say that to your husbands? Now, maybe the other way around as well, but most of the time when I've been in ministry all these years, I found it coming to the wife who basically said, quit asking for forgiveness, deal with the issue. Nothing wrong with praying here. Please do not misunderstand me in this particular context, but this is so enormous. There's nothing wrong with praying here in this particular issue. But in all of my years of ministry, I've seen people pray about issues, pray and pray and pray and pray and pray and never deal with the issue. And they place the burden of responsibility on God instead of dealing honestly with the issue, whatever the issue may be. There's nothing wrong with praying at all, but I've seen a lot of people come to the altar year after year after year after year about a particular issue that they know is there that they've never dealt with, never sought counseling, never asked forgiveness, never wrestled through the consequences of that. They just keep doing the behavior and then running to God and asking him to forgive and going back. And Paul said very clearly, don't you dare take advantage of God's grace that way. God will forgive absolutely and cast it as far away as the east or from the west. But don't you keep taking advantage of God's grace by coming and ask forgiveness of issues you've never dealt with. And you keep going down the same track, down the same path, doing the same thing over and over again. Pray, absolutely pray. 
But it's fascinating to me when God looks at Joshua and said, get up, get off your face, quit praying. You got an issue to deal with and you need to go deal with it. You cannot ignore that in this particular context here at all. Text is verse 11. Israel sinned, they violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things they have stolen, they lied. They put it on their own possessions or put them within their own possessions. This is why the Israelites can't stand up against their enemies. They turned their backs and they ran because they have made liable, been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever is among you that's devoted to destruction. Now go, concentrate the pe- consecrate the people, tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord God of Israel says. This sound is very familiar in parenting. Go upstairs after supper, your father's coming up, right? Go upstairs, we're gonna deal with this issue, dad's coming up, you better deal with it. Joshua's saying that to the people, God's saying it to him. These are the devoted things among you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. In the morning, present yourselves tribe by tribe, clan by clan, family by family, until the Lord chooses the man as you follow forward man by man. Whoever is caught with a devoted thing shall be destroyed by fire. Along with all of his things that belong to him, he's violated the covenant of the Lord and has done an outrageous thing in Israel. Early the next morning, Joshua carries out God's direction. The culprit is finally identified. His name is Achan. Joshua confronts him in verse 19. He said to Achan, my my son, give glory to God. Give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and honor him. Tell me what you have done. Don't hide it from me any longer. And Achan confesses in verse 21 and 20. He replied, it's true. I've sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel. This is what I've done. When I saw the plunder, a beautiful robe from Babylonia, 200 shekels of silver and a bar of, of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and I took them hidden in the ground inside my tent with a silver underneath. Verse 22, it's verified. Don't want you to bypass this for this reason for a moment. I looked up what a shekel is, and you can go to the Internet, and everything on the Internet's true, right? You can go to the Internet. You'll find varying things about from 50 cents to a dollar to 50 bucks. I mean, just a lot of different things as to the exact value of a shekel because they're trying trying to put it in the context of the U.S. dollar or the British crown or pound. I honestly do not think the issue here is the amount. I don't think the issue is the amount. Because you honestly look at a robe, come on, God. These guys are going to pay a huge price for a robe? A little bit of silver and a little bit of gold? You ever said this? I just lied a little. I I didn't flirt much. Uh, Just a little, uh, just a little flirting. I mean, it's not that big a deal, right? I mean, come on, I'm 50. I got to know, I still got it. You lost it a long time ago. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, how many times have you heard that said or at least ran through your own mind? Good night. I lifted so many weights when I was ready to turn 40, I blew out my back. For what? There's a lot of people do a lot of things and, and, and justify it by saying, well, I, I, I've got I've to make sure I still got it. I've got to make sure I still have it. Or it was only a little bit. It was only a little lie. I only said a few things. I only flirted a little bit. The list is endless of examples I could give you. I honestly do not think the issue is the amount. You can prove me wrong. I'm okay with that. But I don't think it was as much about the amount as what he did. 
Verify the story in verse 22, and it came true. Checked it out. Punishment then is carried out. Verse 24, and Joshua, together with all of Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, and listen to this, his sons, his daughters, his cattle, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all of Israel stoned him, and after they did that, they stoned the rest, and they burned them. Over Achan, they piled up a huge uh, heap of rocks, which remains to this day. And then the Lord turned his, from his fierce anger. Therefore, the place has always been called the Valley of Achor ever since. The sermon can be titled a number of things. I think in your sermon notes, I have the, the dangers of hidden sin. It's certainly one title that's been used on a number of occasions when Joshua 7 is dealt with. Sin in a camp is another. A lot of churches have used this as unrest and disturbance going out throughout the church and some issues going on and it's pulling the whole church down. It's one or two families creating an enormous amount of havoc. We've all been in situations, maybe not all of you, but situations where the church was family owned and operated by a few families. You ever been to one of those churches? And where there was a lot of division and it was pulling it down and, and maybe a number of other issues and sin was, was prevalent. It was only a few families, but it had an impact on the church. Some have said Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God, could come out of here. He gave that sermon to his church, by the way, and not in an evangelistic setting at all. Whatever you want to call the sermon, it really doesn't matter. But to be really honest with you, we're going to deal with a huge issue. It's the issue of sin, and this issue of sin has consequences, a lot of them, and sometimes deadly consequences. A few weeks ago, someone put a note in my box that said, I wish you would preach more upbeat sermons. I'm going to disappoint him today and next Sunday morning. But if I'm really honest, what I'm about to share today and next Sunday morning could save your eternal life. And it could save your family from an enormous amount of heartache and pain. And so I don't have any questions at all about what I'm to share in this issue this morning. Sin takes a number of different forms. James 4, 17, that I think is in your sermon this morning, said, If anyone then knows to do the right thing and doesn't do it, for them it's sin. The one who knows to do the right thing and chooses not to do it, it is sin. Proverbs writer said this, There are six things God's hate. No, there are seven that are detestable to him. He hates haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict within the community. Corinthians said, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Neither will the sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the slanders, nor the swindlers. None of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's what some of you were, he goes on to say. But by the grace of God, you were sanctified and washed and justified in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. The list is endless. Now I could give you a list this morning that could be a mile long. You know what that issue may be for you. So allow me this morning to share with you what we can learn from this section of Scripture and next Sunday morning how to avoid it. Number one, what are the things we can learn? Number one, the progression of sin. The progression of sin. Look at Achan's confession in verse 21. This is what he says, basically. I saw, I coveted, and I took. I saw, I wanted it, and I went after it. The issue isn't what he saw. 
The issue is what he did with what he saw. Now, for some of us in the room, maybe there are things that we ought not to even see. I don't watch a lot of movies. I, I get some at home. I don't go to the theater. And, but I, I get some at home and all this stuff. And every once in a while, I hear one coming out and I look for the reviews in the paper. And it fascinated me yesterday when I looked at two or three of them and it said, disturbing images throughout. I think, why would anybody go here? But it'll be successful. And some of us in the room may go. Violence and blood and cursing and profanity throughout. Nudity, every so often. Sexual content. The list is endless of things that I read, and I'm thinking, there are a lot of us in that context that ought not to even see, let alone covet or want to do. But in Joshua, or in Aiken's case here, the issue is I saw, I coveted, and I took. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree, and that's okay. It's okay to have seen it, know that it was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom. And then she took some of it and ate it and also gave it to her husband. James chapter 1, when you're tempted, don't say God is tempting me. God doesn't tempt evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desires and enticed. And then this is the progression that's serious. Then after that desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. The issue isn't to see. Some of us it may be, but the issue is I, I gotta have that. I need to get that. I, I really want that. I don't have that. I really, and the list is endless of ways that we can get down that path, and then eventually we're gonna give in to that. That's why the Apostle Paul said, Look, you gotta take every thought captive. You know, and I know your mind can be your best friend or what? Your worst enemy. And Paul said, there are some things that you've got to make sure that you're aware of, weaknesses in your life, things the enemy has done to you before, ways that you've been dragged down before, that you've got to be in that situation where you've got to say, whoa, I cannot go down this track. I've got to take every single thought captive. You know how hard it is to captivate your thoughts? But he said, you've got to take every thought captive so that you don't get down this road that's eventually going to lead to destruction. Look at what he says here. That desire, when it's conceived, when you allow it to remain there, when that seed stays there for such a long period of time, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, is going to give birth to death. Sin undealt with only leads to one end, and that's ultimate destruction. So Paul said, you've got to be careful. You've got to do everything you can to take every thought captive. Nothing wrong again with what he saw. It was the fact that he acted on what he saw. He wanted it, and he took it. Number two, sin will always be revealed. Not only is there a progression that we have to guard and be very careful of, secondly, we've got to know right now the sin will always be revealed. You can try to cover it up. You can hope no one sees. You may think no one notices, but sin will always be revealed. Jesus said, what is done in darkness will be revealed in the light, for there is nothing, Luke chapter 8, hidden that will not be disclosed, nothing concealed that will not be known and brought into the open, especially with today's technology. 20 years ago, I wouldn't have thought that much about it, but with today's technology and the ability to flash a picture on anything, there is nothing that eventually won't show up somewhere. I mean, we watch all these spy shows on TV every once in a while and all those cameras everywhere and the fact that everybody watches every move you make. And of course, we have all the NSA stuff and on and on the list goes of that. 
But whether or not it's true, and to be honest with you, those that I've talked to on the inner circle know that there are a lot of places you don't think people are watching when they do. But in the age of this kind of technology that we have today with people taking pictures of everything and anything, how do you really think no one is going to see? Sin will always be revealed. I think I've told you before, but a number of years ago, my brother and I decided at Christmas every once in a while we would say some things to our dad that we did when we were kids. You know, we just thought we'd get it off our chest. It's Christmas. What a better time to share. So we would try to think of those things or try to come up with them. We'd say, Dad, I just want you to know when we were kids, we did this. And we'd tell him what it was. He said, yeah, I know. Seriously? Like, you didn't think I saw the tracks of that truck you took? You didn't think that I saw the tracks of the tractor that you took out to the field and beat that thing down to death with a bucket of the high lift? And the list was endless. He said, seriously, you didn't think that I knew? So we would try to come up with things that we thought, there's certainly no way he saw this. And he said, I know. I'm thinking if my dad, who doesn't have a clue what modern technology is like, I mean, I asked him, I said, Dad, do you have it? He said, he said to me, I got a cell phone. I said, well, that's cool. What's the number? Well, that's a good question. I said, where's it at? In the drawer. Is it charged? I don't think so. Does it need to be? Come on, Seriously. If my father, who doesn't have the kind of technology that we do today available to us, knew everything we did when we were kids, what do you think your heavenly father sees? Absolutely everything. He knows when we're going down a path we shouldn't be on. He knows when I'm watching things that I shouldn't watch. He knows when I'm flirting in areas that I shouldn't be in. Sin will always be revealed. Number three, sin has consequences. Sin has consequences on us and our family on other people. You look at this section of Scripture, and if you really look at it and examine it, you probably come to a conclusion where it doesn't seem fair. I mean, it, 36 guys, innocent guys died because one guy took some stuff. And, and not only 36 innocent guys who died, whose families were affected by that, but Achan's sons, his daughters, his camels, his, what did a camel do for heaven's sakes? His tent, that's the one that intrigued me when I read, his tent, burned his tent. Doesn't seem to be fair, doesn't seem to make sense. Now what you obviously have to do is understand biblical theology. In our American culture, it's extremely individualistic and I'm my own man, I'm my own person, I, I take responsibility or lack thereof for my issues, but good night, you even have to know in context of today, you're, Whatever decisions they are affect other people. In this particular context, when one person sinned, the, the country or the family or the nation reaped the consequences of that individual sin. And the Bible looks at it much differently than you and I would when we look at this section of Scripture and say it isn't fair. I had a young gal come up to me after the first service and say, you think her kids really, his kids didn't notice? I said, have you ever been in a tent? I mean, they're not that big. And it's kind of hard to hide stuff. The issue isn't whether they saw or whether they noticed. The issue is things you do, decisions you make, have consequences. And many times it affects innocent people that had nothing to do with a particular issue. Drinking and driving is a classic example. How many times have you read the story in a paper where a drunk driver was out that night? I only had a few. I only took a few. I was really tired. I was really weary. I, I, I just needed to get release. I needed some whatever the excuse may be. And so went too many and went too far and drank too much and drove home and never was hurt 
in the accident, but family members and children and others' lives will forever be changed because of that one person's decision. It certainly doesn't seem right. certainly doesn't seem fair. Decisions that you and I make on a regular basis affect everybody or affect a lot of people or affect our kids. And so we've got to make them wisely and make them well. I still remember when I was trying to make a decision about coming here and sensing God's direction and all of that. I, I said to my wife and kids, I'm going to take the truck up on a hillside in Potter County somewhere, and when I know I've heard from God, I'll come down. And I sat there with God in the mountain, and I said, Lord, this decision is going to affect my daughters, a 10th grade and a senior in high school. This decision is going to affect this church, and it has for the last 18 years. And it's going to affect this church that I'm asked to be coming to. And hopefully it has affected this church in a positive way. But this decision has huge implications. And so I want to make sure that I hear you well and do it wisely. Every decision in life has consequences of some kind or the other. And so many decisions affect other people. Sin has huge consequences. It will affect yourself. It will affect your family. It will affect your kids. It will affect a church. Paul said, look, in 1 Corinthians, um, you need to know if one part suffers, every part suffers with it. One part rejoices or is honored, we rejoice with it. But even in the context of the church, that person who is trying to, to stir up trouble within the context of a church, I don't know if you've ever grown up in a church that was family-owned and operated, but that can really bring a lot of havoc and reap a lot of havoc in a church where people are stirring up issues and eventually the whole church just from one or two families is being affected by that. And more importantly, God's reputation is being destroyed in a community where people are saying, I don't want to go to that church. They have the absolute greatest message on the planet to redeem humanity because of Jesus Christ. And nobody wants to come and hear it because of all the stuff going on. Sin has consequences for you, for your family, for the body of Christ, for the church. So what do we do? I'm glad you asked. Because next Sunday morning I'll give you the answer. This issue is so huge, you, you can't not deal with it all. I said at the beginning as I was praying with the elders this morning, I'm so delighted that God dealing with such an enormous issue with such huge consequences didn't leave us alone. But he gave us so many answers to avoid it, ways to deal with it, resources to help, God's response to it, and God's response to us. And we're going to end next Sunday morning in the absolute most appropriate way we could ever end this section of Scripture, with communion. And you'll see why. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot at stake here with this issue for maybe somebody here this morning. There's a lot of stake in maybe an individual life or a family's life or church's life, and, and you know all of that. Lord, I'm so delighted that you're so honest, that you didn't bury this stuff. You, you allowed it to be there, but I'm so delighted that you gave us answers so that we don't feel so overwhelmed and devastated feeling there's no hope. It's so bad. It's so big. I've gone so far. I can't get out. God, I love the fact that you gave us so many resources and so many answers. So as we begin to unpack that this week, even this week, as everyone takes all of this home and they think about their own life and their own world and their own issues and their own stuff, I trust that you will already begin to work. And then next week as we return together and 
look at some wonderful answers and resources that you've given us and share this time of communion when we recognize the price you paid for our sin and the response you have to that you're welcome home when we come running into your arms we just trust that it will be such an amazing moment with you that will forever be changed until we see you face to face thank you for your honesty thank you for your word and for the power that goes with it and this amazing story that teaches us so much in such a short amount of context in jesus name